I'm Rahul Mathan, and I'm really glad to have Sachit Balsari here with me. Hi, Sachit. Hi, Rahul. Thank you for having me. Sachit, you know, you and I have been having this conversation for a really long time. And I think all of this is sort of coming to a head in India right now. We've got uh, Ayushman Bharat, which is rolled out, which is an enormous insurance program uh, for half the population of the country, which itself is a staggeringly large number. We've got the India health stack that's being built out. We've got a whole set of digital programs. And I think that it's really in- interesting to see what India is doing. But more importantly, it's probably interesting to see what the rest of the world has done to see if this direction that India is going down is is either the correct one or if there are other alternatives or you know where you think we will go. I couldn't agree more with your assessment that we are at an extraordinarily important time in India where digital health is concerned. I think given the ingredients that we have in India in terms of our infrastructure, our internet connectivity, uh, the sheer number of computer scientists and data scientists available in India, and the attention on healthcare finally by both state and central government is positioning us to, uh, in India to really change the way healthcare delivery has been imagined anywhere in the world. Done correctly, we are truly poised to make significant contributions to medical science globally by the sheer volume of the number of patients we treat in India every day in both our private and public hospitals. However, this isn't a given. I think we have to be very thoughtful about how we digitize the health ecosystem in India, which is going to be a prerequisite and the backbone for all these changes that we are desiring, whether it is Ayushman Bharat, whether it is digital health, whether it is big data and AI and machine learning. There's so much conversation about the potential for how we will be dealing with medicine in India. Uh, And all of that might be um, an empty dream unless the hardwiring is done very thoughtfully. And I'm assuming that when you say that we don't have any hardwiring, at least the sense that that, that I get, uh, with the exception of the big hospitals, there isn't that much digitization uh, in India, particularly not in uh, the rural hinterland. So health data are not digitized in India, period. I think sort of in terms of the the grand scheme of things, the kinds of data that are digitized are very minuscule. And in the pockets that they are digitized, I think those isolated data sets don't mean much. So even in the private sector and large public hospitals, what is more likely to be digitized is what is more useful for billing and inventory. So, you know, labs tend to be digitized, uh, pharmacy stocks tend to be digitized. But that clinical interaction between the physician and the patient is largely still not digitized. When you look at large government data sets, um, the, the public sector will also admit that the veracity of those data, I mean, they are large, and so we can sort of sometimes get away without being very accurate because error margins are reduced just by the sheer volume of what these data are. But they aren't necessary of high quality. They are not actionable because of where they are collected, which is largely on paper, collated not in real time, making their way slowly up the chains of aggregation 
navigation into these centralized databases that very few people can access. And, and data are really useful when you can apply them, um, and in medicine, apply them to, uh, for the benefit of the patient and for society, both of which we are currently not really able to do at scale in India so, at all. So why is it useful? I mean, I, I think everyone is you know, hurtling down this path of digitization of health data because we think that there is a benefit to digitizing it. Yeah. That's not necessarily immediately obvious. So what additional thing could we get out of digital medical data yeah. that we don't already have? You know, portability is key. If, if my data were digital, they would travel more easily. And I'm sure we'll spend some time today talking about the the pitfalls and the dangers of, of, of you know, my health data uh, traveling from one place to the other. But I think we get so caught up in imagining um, sort of a dark, a worst case scenario with health data travel that we forget that in 2019, we are unable to leverage all the technologies that have now existed for quite many years uh, to better our own health. Take, for example, the way we access just our lab data in India. Typically, you go to your general practitioner, and they will write your prescription, send you to an X lab for certain kinds of tests, a Y lab for other diagnostic tests, and then you go around collecting your documents from these places, uh, collate them, usually in branded polythene bags or large uh, card paper envelopes with the pharmacies or the you know, lab's uh, emblem on it, and then take all those back to your doctor. Sends you to a specialist who will send you to another set of labs that he or she is comfortable with and you start all over again. And very and, often they're the same test or uh, there's, there's an overlap uh, and I, we see this all the time. You go to a particular doctor, he likes a particular diagnostic lab and even if you've got the same result, he'll say no, you know, go to another lab because I, you know, this guy does it well. Right. And so you're absolutely right. So there is redundancy, but there is also the inability to then access all this information in a time-efficient manner. You literally, in order to then review these tests, the doctors are sitting with binders of these tests, flipping through pages from various labs. They're all in different formats and are highly likely to miss subtle signs. So simply, for I, the example I, I like to share is that when I had a parent who was receiving chemotherapy, I just wanted to follow uh, the liver function tests to look for adverse, uh, for, to look for side effects of the chemotherapeutic drugs that she was on. And I was unable to in any efficient way, compare labs. The only way I would actually be able to review that chart is by looking at the lab results from multiple labs over times, all in different formats, looking for numbers in red. Now, for that, you didn't need a physician. What I wanted is a simple line graph that showed what those functions looked like and to see whether they were going up or going down, whether it was trending up and trending down. And it is, it is incredibly startling that we get all kinds of um, information. At the end of the year, Spotify will send you a chart of what you listen to and what your music <laughs> tastes are, and yet I cannot get any access to um, simple medical data uh, in real time. I'm unable to collate this. 
The redundancy piece that you talk about is, is a frightening phenomenon, which is a direct result of uh, non-interoperability. So simply saying that we will digitize data will actually not solve the redundancy problem. Even if all these lab data were digital, the question is, will Dr. X be able to access data from place Y but when he actually likes to you know, go to lab Z? And I will give you an example of, of what happens uh, in one of the uh, richest hospitals in, in the United States. For many years, I practiced on the Upper East Side uh, of Manhattan, where two large hospitals, one uh, the New York Presbyterian uh, Hospital System and the other the Hospital for Special Surgery, which is an orthopedic hospital, were, connected, were physically connected by uh, a sky bridge. But the two hospitals are separate financial and legal entities. And when a trauma patient came into my emergency department in one hospital, um, I would do a series of tests and determine that the only injury that the patient had was an orthopedic injury and transfer the patient over to the hospital for special surgery. The patient would physically move across the sky bridge, but her data would not move with her because they were locked up in essentially what was a silo of an electronic medical record owned by one particular hospital. Yeah, what do you mean owned? Because this is the patient's data. So uh, at least in, and we'll get to, the, get to the privacy aspects of this, I'm sure, in, in some detail. But in India, the narrative is that you own your own data. Uh, and this, of course, we know that that's not true, that there are data brokers and, and people who collect data who have some sort of a proprietary stake over it. I'm assuming that's what is the case uh, with your hospital. Right. I think, you know, there is the, the legal meaning of data ownership and then sort of the, the practical uh, accessibility of data. So whether or not, whether you're in the U.S. or in India, you own your data, the question is, do you have access to your data? Finally, that is what will matter uh, at the street level, sort of the practicality of, you know, am I able to access and use my data? And in the United States, for the last 15 years or so, data collected in an electronic medical record in a hospital system were most easily accessible to hospital administrators, to insurance companies. They were used for quality control, for ensuring payments. They were least accessible to the patients themselves until more recently, where hospitals have started providing patient portals where they can at least look up their reports and have access to the data. But it is definitely a more recent phenomenon. And physicians um, have also had very poor access to the data. But it's counterintuitive, right? Because shouldn't the physician be able to see not just the immediate data of the patient that is in front of him or her, but also every previous visit, because clearly that indicates the overall health trend or all the other symptoms. Yeah. Shouldn't that be easy to do? So I think um, physicians are able to, to access data that is in their system, uh, where the U.S. has miserably failed is in ensuring that physicians can access the patient's data, relevant uh, data, medical data from all their previous visits at all nodes in the system. So if the patient keeps coming to my hospital, sure, I can look at his or her 
prior data. But if the patient is seeking care at multiple hospitals, which is what most people around the world do, then the U.S. system, by and large, precludes the physician from having easy access to these data. And that goes to the point of ownership, because if the patient really owned their data or had easy access to their portable data, they should be able to provide it to all their healthcare givers. I think it's probably a good time to discuss the U.S. system, because from the Indian context, we're, we were discussing, I don't know if it's still active, but we're discussing Disha, uh, which essentially is an EHR, EMR, uh, electronic health record, electronic medical record type of system that is going to be suggested for the country as, as the blueprint. And from what I hear you say, that's what the U.S. is using now, and it's not terribly successful. Yeah, I think India really needs to, and this is a fantastic opportunity for us in India to ask the question, well, what is the purpose of the electronic health record or the electronic medical record? And we really ought not to be suffering from imagination paralysis. The electronic medical record in the United States is largely a billing instrument and a medical legal instrument. It, uh, you know, you open a chart, there are all kinds of clicks. Uh, you have to fill a certain amount of information without which your chart cannot close. And a lot of that information is required for billing because of how hospitals are remunerated, reimbursed in the United States. So one understands why that charting is necessary. There are also several aspects of the charting that have to do more with the medical legal aspect of charting. So for example, if I were documenting a laceration repair, meaning uh, there was a little gash on my patient's leg, uh, a wound essentially that I needed to wash and stitch up, um, I would be documenting typically on that chart uh, where the wound is, how long it is, how deep it is, how simple or complex it is, that I control the patient's pain, that I wash the wound, what I washed it with, um, that I applied local anesthesia, what anesthesia I used, how I closed the wound and how many layers, how many stitches I put in the wound, and then whether there were any direct complications of the procedure. So for every patient, yes. you record this volume of data. And I can see why you're doing it, because a lot of it is billing, because uh, the, the suture that you used or the bandage that you used is going to go to some billing department to ultimately end up on a bill. And also the things you mentioned, the fact that you washed it and then you sutured it and then you closed it goes to practice, which indicates that you've been diligent and done everything that you uh, were supposed to do as a, as a good doctor. It all makes perfect sense from a, from a legal perspective, both from this is why I'm billing you and why you have to pay me and this is why you can't sue me for malpractice. This is not particularly useful from a, from a medical perspective. I think it is completely useless from a medical perspective and I uh, see no point in documenting all of this because my saying that I use anesthesia or that my uh, saying that I clean the wound um, does not preclude, it will not prevent an infection if I have done a shoddy job. The proof is in the pudding. If the patient does not get an infected, I did a good job. If the patients won't get infected, either I introduce the infection or the patient introduce the infection later. And these checkboxes really do little to actually prevent the infection on the patient. So what would be useful information to record? Because your digital information is useful and you're saying that we're capturing the wrong information. What would be useful from as a doctor? So in that particular case, the real 
clinically relevant piece of information, if you got down to the bare bones, is really how many stitches I put in. You know, because the next doctor needs to know how many stitches to take out and to make right. sure that there wasn't one stitch left in. Right. That's really the most important, relevant piece and of information. And you don't record, or you do record that. We do, we do, but that is, But you it's know, buried hidden. in a yes, lot. Yes, yeah, and right. there are, you know, there are 20 other data points that I have wasted uh, documenting, not because they do not need to be documented, but the question to ask is, is the physician or the clinical provider the right person to document uh, this information. Am I essentially an um, a stenographer for, uh, you know, or a data entry person for the medical department, uh, for the legal department and the finance department in the hospital? Uh, and the answer to that is yes. I mean, the, the clinical provider in the United States has been reduced to playing that role. And there is tremendous amount of, of, of evidence and, and scientific literature that now shows how these um, EMRs have paralyzed healthcare in the United States, have been responsible for physician burnout, and have made so many doctors really unhappy at work. They've also ended up being an extraordinarily expensive affair. Um, you might recollect Professor Atul Gavande's um, article in The New Yorker last month, where he talks about a rollout at one of our Harvard hospitals of this large medical record system called EPIC, which ends up costing the hospital over a billion dollars, first in purchasing the medical record and then in accounting for all the training that has to go into it, uh, the slowdown in care, because when the system is introduced, doctors are not able to see as many patients as they're able to and there's loss of revenue um, and an eventual firing of a whole bunch of um, healthcare providers in the hospital, uh, which, you know, while it may not be directly attributed to the um, purchase of Epic uh, certainly happened in, in the shadow of, of that purchase. And India can certainly not afford this, right? We cannot afford to spend billions of dollars on, on medical records while there are basic issues of healthcare provision of service delivery that we still need to sort out. So the, the, the path that Disha is talking about is in your having read it, uh, your opinion, more along the lines of the medico-legal insurance-driven approach to uh, digital health, or is it something different? The Disha architecture calls for centralized repositories, which are probably not the most forward-looking architecture that we should be looking at. There are better ways uh, for health data to travel from node to node. Uh, we should not imagine health data as being dependent on the electronic medical record or the electronic health record, because health data are generated everywhere else in the health data ecosystem as well. Uh, with modern technology, they are generated on our wrist, in our hands, on our Fitbits, in our cell phones. They are generated on apps we use, on other devices we use. They are generated at labs, at chemists, um, at you know the radiology diagnostic center, at our GPs. And so to say that we will essentially imagine a new healthcare ecosystem for India, where largely the inpatient record, or at most to the outpatient record becomes the linchpin of what we call the medical record is uh, doing ourselves a disservice. We really ought to reimagine uh, health data as that 
A, that is in compliance with the local laws. You know, after uh, recent judgments by the Supreme Court, by, after Puttaswamy, after the Aadhaar judgment, and after the Sri Krishna draft uh, bill on data protection, it's quite clear that we are saying that the patient should have uh, control over their data. And if truly the patient is to have control over the data, it means that the patient should have access to all their data uh, wherever they are generated, and which means that the way to go is to imagine for all Indians a personal health record, a set of data points that belong to the patient, that are tagged to the patient, and that the patient uh, can make available to his or her providers wherever they are in the health service delivery ecosystem. But this presumes a certain savviness, if, there's, if I can use that word, of the, of the patient. These are, you know, Fitbit data, I guess, is, is easy to talk about. But even there, uh, the average person doesn't know whether it will harm him to disclose this data to a, a doctor or an insurance company. But, you know, you're presuming that the PHR, which is in control of the patient, that would be a solution because you're assuming agency on the part of that that individual uh, and allowing him to use that as best he he sees fit with full knowledge of repercussions and consequences that's not the case true and i think we have to acknowledge therefore so look whatever we do in india has to take care of, uh, has to be applicable to all Indians. So we cannot design a system which is only for people that are tech savvy. And if there is a technological solution that we propose, it must be wired such that it always favors and protects the citizen first. And, and so either, and, and that is done, I think, as you would agree, Rahul, uh, there are two approaches to it, and both are complementary. One is you have the right laws in place, and the other is you bake the regulations you need into the technology, and you sort of try and make it as tamper-proof as possible. There is no 100% uh, foolproof technology, as much as the technocrats will tell you there is, uh, but which is why I think you sort of balance it with, with the law. The one thing we ought to remember, though, and, and recognize is that context changes and what we expect our data will do is very dependent on who we are, where we are, and how much we have been used to our data being manipulated to provide services to us. An example that uh, uh, we've discussed in the past that we've both liked is when uh, we first learned that uh, Google was quote-unquote reading our emails, it freaked all of us out and it was quite unacceptable. You know, years have gone by now and data are being extracted from one Google service to another and Google calendars are now populated with our flight details, which we never punched in, but have been extracted from our emails or Google Maps now start showing locations of places you've frequently visited. And while it, that might make um, you and me very uncomfortable, it may not make a uh, younger generation uncomfortable. They may come to expect these data to be available on their services. 
And that doesn't make it right or wrong. I think we have to, uh, the question is, do these people who get uh, used to these services, do, do they have a good sense of what is being done with their data once they are collected? And that will apply in healthcare too, right? If I have a, an app that can access my personal health record on my phone, to provide me services. A simple app that looks at my uh, medication list, for example, and sets reminders for me to take my medicine uh, may also be taking those data and selling it to a third party. And uh, the question to have in India is, is what laws do you need to, to have in place where that kind of abuse is prevented? And the solution often that... But, but that at the same time, the benefit is not uh, reduced, is restricted. I mean, Correct. I think there's, there's a lot of benefit, particularly for uh, elderly people uh, to have some sort of a, a reminder. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, say you're on, on, on doxycycline, that is an antibiotic, and um, your, your doctor had prescribed it uh, to you in a hurry and forgot to tell you about some of the side effects. A known side effect is a rash that you might get when exposed to the sun. It is not in inconceivable that your phone would alert you if it knew that you were on doxycycline to your sun exposure, reminding you to cover up, right? And this is not really all sci-fi. I mean, we need to think about the world we lived in 10 years ago, where uh, some of what we use our phones now for was unfathomable. And when I say us, it also means across the socioeconomic strata, we've all seen that that how people use their phones or what people use their phones for other than calling is hardly uh, restricted to the upper echelons of society. Um, it's just everyone that has access to both a simple and a smartphone have pretty much taken advantages of, of many of its new features. And I think to sort of deprive us of these technological advancements, of the personal clinical benefits to patients and providers by allowing first digitization of data and then data porta portability is short-sighted. But doing so without having a serious conversation about what kind of architecture would most allow the safe and secure transfer and application of such data is really interesting. And I find uh, a lot of your writings quite, quite fascinating, Rahul, especially around the concept of not uh, looking, of not interpreting health data uh, in terms of data ownership, but in terms of control and access, uh, in, in identifying what data principles are, you know, which is essentially the patient, um, and then those that process um, and control the data, you know, i.e. hospitals or third-party fiduciaries, as, as you have brought up. To me, the app question is always interesting because, you know, often the solution to all of this uh, in healthcare is consent. Um, in the U.S., uh, we have a fairly high consent-driven architecture, which precludes a lot of people who should have access to the health data that they don't. As a physician, for example, it is very hard for me to be able to query uh, my own data set to look at uh, how my practice of managing patients with, say, chest pain has um, evolved over the last 10 years. Oh, that's interesting. So you, from what you said earlier, you have every ability to look at the way you treated a particular patient, but it's perhaps more interesting uh, just to see what sort of doctor you are, yeah. uh, to analyze all the patients that you've treated for chest pain yes. uh, and see, I don't know, if you've 
prescribed too much pain medication or if you prescribed you know too soon you prescribed antibiotics i don't know absolutely i think right both thing. both those case examples are very uh, very good so if i were in private practice and i had binders of all these patients it would be perfectly acceptable for me to look through all their records and imagine uh, and 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 uh, examine what my practice is like um think about sort of the early days of of hiv where physicians that were treating this weird syndrome that they were uh, seeing in the public hospitals in new york city uh, realized that there was something odd and there was a higher frequency of these cluster of diseases that they were getting and they were basically able to pull up all the charts of their patients um and review them and and see that there seemed to be common thread of a particular cluster of symptoms that were showing up at these hospitals it is now nearly impossible to do that you know with wow, the digitization really? now you have thought that digitization is designed to pick this up easier well digitization and and you know going back to what we earlier talked about digitization was was designed to provide an effective billing instrument and a medical legal right. instrument and not to meet research needs and not to meet the clinician's needs or the patient's needs and i think in the us we all agree that that the privacy barriers have gone too far and they're very skewed while a physician may have difficulty in querying his or own uh, her own charts uh, hospital administrators may actually have easier access to these kinds of data uh, under the guise of quality control uh, quality assurance and so you know in india we we have an opportunity to sort of reexamine this reimagine this there there isn't sort of necessarily one right answer this isn't all black and white but if we go down the right of a consent architecture we will um really slow down innovation in the medical space it will not suffice to have just consent because a consent may either raise barriers for secondary use of data and and we can come to that in a minute but also consent may be misleading i might consent an app to look at my medication list but it may not be clear to me that while i have consented an app to look at my medication list on my phone it is because i'm consenting it to look at my personal health record it is also extracting all kinds of other information and perhaps selling it to a third party and so we need laws in place that discuss purpose limitation um limitation of time for the use of data especially health data as they travel both through uh, time and space but look just to push back a little bit on yeah. purpose limitation right so as a researcher uh, you know that it is not always possible to perfectly articulate the purpose for which you're collecting the data or that you would use the data and in fact if you keep that purpose broad enough you're likely to get information out of the data that you're analyzing that is perhaps more useful than it would have been if you had only used it for that limited purpose that you had originally said you're absolutely right and as a society i think we need to have a conversation about purpose limitation purpose limitation as it relates to different roles um you know as a physician I think my ability to look at that, those binders of my patients um certainly breaches purpose limitation exactly. I have taken yeah. the patient's data for uh, you know for clinical care but if clearly I am at the cusp of a scientific discovery by virtue of the kinds of patients I have then what do I do and the simple answer is well then you notify all your patients and you're telling them that you're using uh, their data uh, for research 
But at some point, uh, this becomes a matter of scale. And yes, I have a small practice and I have 50 patients, I can do that. But what if I am a large cancer hospital? What if I am, you know, Tata Memorial Cancer Hospital? What if I'm a cancer grid? And um, as a researcher that began to look at uh, certain, uh, say the researcher is authorized to look at X kinds of data, but picks up Y trend in the data. Um, and we are talking about data from uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients over several years, what are the notification, uh, what is the notification burden we are going to be put on this patient? And, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are ethics committees that dictate this kind of research that protect the identi- that protect patients' identity. You are, allowed to, uh, you are allowed secondary use of data when data are aggregated or where they're de-identified. And, and these kinds of questions have uh, very seriously been looked at Uh, in the medical scientific community. I think the challenge going forward is technology, which allows you to either purposefully or inadvertently uh, re-identify patients. And there are classic examples now in the literature where this has been done, where you take two data sets where each data set independently may not allow you to identify someone, but if you merge the two data sets, you get enough information to identify people. And um, while there isn't... 100% foolproof solution that has yet been architected anywhere else in the world. I think we have several choices in front of us. There is the GDPR, um, there uh, there is the US model, um, and and there might be a middle path that that India takes with uh, the Sri Krishna uh, draft bill where we explore what sort of our guiding principles should be. I think what we really need to remember, and this is what I'm most excited about, is we have an opportunity to seriously ask the question, uh, what are we trying to solve? Are we trying to solve insurance claims, insurance fraud? Are we trying to get better inventory so that there is less uh, leak in the system? Or are we committed to making clinical care better? In which case, a conversation should be driven by the clinicians, by public health agencies, by ministries of health, by um, uh, frontline workers, uh, our community health workers, to identify what the pain points are in healthcare delivery. What can we do for a patient's that would improve their access to health if they had, uh, that would improve their health if they had access to their data? What can we do for providers to improve access to data? What can we do for public health agencies? There are good examples for each of them. You know, as a patient, um, I think we get up, we get very caught up in India about imagining what the entire health data ecosystem should be. And then there is so much paralysis because you think about the tens of hundreds sometimes of vertical uh, schemes we have across various states in India, the large databases, the recent rollouts of the non-communicable disease program, the national health stack, uh, IHIP's work in uh, northern India, and we talk about interoperability between all these data sets and, and we sort of just don't know where to start. And maybe the time now is to actually take a step back and say, look, Can we start somewhere? 
what are the few data points that we can make portable uh, and interoperable that will benefit the patient. Uh, I propose that these be a current list of diagnosis, a current list of medications, uh, the patient's allergies. Uh, just with that information, sorry, and a fourth um, are uh, lab results. If, if I as a patient had access to an updated list of my medications uh, that various interactions in the system. I get discharged from a hospital, my medication list has changed, my GP adds two medications, my specialist subtracts three medications. It is ridiculous that in 2019 we cannot digitize this process where the patient and all the providers cannot have a live can, running can we list just have an app of for their this? medication. I, mean, I, 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 this, this, um, I know my, for my parents um, uh, they, they're elderly and they have a lot of medicines and there's a, a, a nice little app which in which you just feed in all the medications that, that the person has uh, and if you go for some other ailment or some other you know maybe a dentist or something like that which you wouldn't think that all these medicines uh, would affect them but at least I've got it all with me uh, on the app and it may and you know sometimes some medication that was given for a stomach problem has some impact uh, to a dentist as well and then they just change the course or they don't do the, the surgery immediately, they'll do it later and say don't be off this medicine for some time. But there's no simple way to do that uh, in, a, you know, in, in the way in which we're organized today. Sure. And, and, and I think that app that you uh, mentioned can be scaled to our you know, population of 1.4 billion if all parents uh, had a son that happened to be you know, one of the smartest legal minds in the country. Right? So, so the solution is, is not scalable at all because it takes someone with a fair it's degree of education and health literacy, right? which doesn't always translate uh, together. I mean, there are enough people with, with high degrees Uh, that uh, are incapable of, of, of listing even their five medications. Uh, the solution here is to, to automate this process. And so when your physician is prescribing the medications to your parents, uh, that process should very seamlessly uh, transfer that medication prescription from the physician's phone or device to your parents. Uh, to your parents' record. And we're doing this in the financial sector. We are able to transfer money from each other's phones to each other. Right? Completely unthinkable. You know, 15 years ago, who would have guessed that tapping a little piece of glass in your palm will allow you to transfer cash or, you know, call a taxi or have food show up at your door. And we have so intelligently used these technologies to solve all these problems, some of which we didn't even know we had. And yet we can't seem to be able to leverage it to um, transmit these basic amounts of, of, of health data. And, and the challenge here is interoperability, right? So the, computer, the, the physician can have a software uh, that he or she uses to write her prescriptions. And you might get a nice uh, PDF of, of your prescriptions, which you know, doctors and cities in India have started to do. But that is completely useless to you. Um, as, as you reminded me, Rahul, the new uh, data protection bill does state that, uh, that Indians have a right to their, uh, Indians have a right to portability of their data in a machine-readable format. I think just that clause that says that they have a right to their structured data is key. Yeah, It, because a PDF data is useless in that you've got to extract the data out of the PDF, right. but... Um, what Sri Krishna is recommending is machine-readable, 
and in a format that is, uh, I guess, uh, uh, commonly used. I think machine readable in an archaic is standardized, right? right. So if in an archaic format is not useful. Yes. But machine readable in a format that everyone can read it means that all providers and all consumers can be reading off sort of the same template and understanding right. the data uh, right. in the same way. And that's really powerful. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are standards for transferring medical data around the world. India has adopted several of these, not, not successfully implemented them, but certainly adopted them. There are standards for writing diagnostic codes, there are standards for writing medications, there are standards for labs, and so on. So can I ask, because we, we started out saying that all of those standards were driven by insurance and legal imperatives. Has that muddied in any way the utility of those standards? Or are those standards also giving you as a doctor or you as a researcher all the data that you think you would need? No, the they, they, they actually don't. And, and I, would, I would add that I think we have an opportunity if we're willing to provide, if we're willing to dedicate sources and minds um, to, to this issue of, of picking and choosing what standards we want to comply with and whether some standards need to be rethought. While ICD-10 is sort of a given and is a standard for diagnoses around the world, uh, they're extremely cumbersome. Um, some of them are plain silly. Uh, there are diagnoses of, you know, return visit to your hospital after a plane crash or after the left wing fell off. And, <laughs> really? and, yes, yes, and, and, and complete. No, I, I don't get that. So the plane has crashed, the left wing has fallen off, and then there this is a specific diagnostic code for for uh, for your first and your second visit to the hospital after that, right? Which has, wow. you know, it's as funny as it is, and, and and maybe they inserted them so that we could, you know, talk about it on our podcast. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's probably uh, the, the the first and last time that's been used. Right, right. right. Um, and and so I think there is there is value in sort of again rethinking what is it that we need these diagnostic codes for? Are we generating them? Are we creating them for billing? In which case, you know perhaps you stick to national standards. Are there better standards? Can we learn from European countries? Should we have our own diagnostic list uh, that is more relevant to India? And sort of the pros and cons of this, right? I mean, if every population tried to reinvent this, then at some point you, you lose interoperability across borders as well. But, um, you know, I would, I would caution against sort of getting paralyzed by, by these discussions and sort of not, not have the jet-setting, tertiary care, private hospital, uh, healthcare-seeking Indian um, in, in front of us as we're imagining our system, but instead think of the migrant laborer, the pregnant, uh, the pregnant migrant laborer uh, that is seeking care across state boundaries, dependent on a fair amount of uh, public services, but then also once in a while seeking care in a private hospital. And imagine how do we, how do we design a system now that helps her have access to her current list of medications, her diagnosis, and her lab test. Can we just solve that simple problem? So, and just to paraphrase what we've been speaking about, say, yeah. for the last half an hour, we started out with this EMR, yeah. uh, which is, uh, the way you described it, very hospital, very institutional-focused. It serves the purpose of the hospital. It serves the purpose of the insurance company that pays the hospital. Doesn't, isn't particularly designed to serve our purpose as, as the patient. And the first shift you're suggesting is to make that patient-centric and call it... Um, personal health record. A personal health record, which, you know, just in the nomenclature, reminds me a lot of the way in which Justice Sri Krishna shifted the narrative 
from a data subject to a data principal right. and the data collector to the data fiduciary. Uh, and you know, if we just replay all of that from the transition from an EMR to a uh, PHR, what we're saying is that I have uh, access and control uh, of all the elements of data that make up my personal health record. Right. And I have the agency and the ability to use it whichever way I want. I don't have to go and redo a lab report mm -hmm. um, because I, you know, I have the ability if I want to redo it because time has passed from the last one. Sure. But equally, I have in a longitudinal sequence all the uh, lab reports I've, I've got, which right. you know, in, in the case of the person you were speaking about, you, you will be able to get that trend of chemotherapy or right. the trend of the you know, liver right. function test. Right which currently we don't have. Yes. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really powerful uh, re-articulation of the problem and our potential solution. A couple of things from here. Is anyone else, is any other country doing this? Um, what stops the US and the UK, which have got these huge data systems, big investments in data systems, from doing something like this, which is obvious? I mean, I, I think it, 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 there should be it should be very evident to people that a lot of inefficiency can be pulled out of the system. A lot of the friction that currently exists could be, could be erased if we could do something like this. And is there a reason why people aren't doing it? Or is, is perhaps someone is doing it? Right. So the UK is, is a different story from the US because of the NHS. All the data do talk to each other. So similarly, in the VA system in the United States, all the data do talk to each other. Um, and VA is veterans. The, 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 veteran, the veteran affairs um, hospital. So, you know, they have a whole separate health system uh, for uh, U.S. veterans, uh, which actually has one of the better electronic medical records. But all, all the veteran sites across uh, the U.S. talk to each other. Uh, and so there is... There is there is that kind of interoperability available. The, the reason it doesn't happen is is often because of uh, you know you have to you have to follow the money and and see what the incentives is are. So people that that take these decisions in boardrooms around what system to adopt clearly are uh, more tuned into protecting the institution legally, protecting their doctors legally, uh, needing systems which uh, maintain better inventory and financial tools. Right. So they are not wrong in what uh, they are trying to do. I think what. Uh, they've grossly miscalculated is the negative impact that it has had on clinical practice. Uh, those stakeholders have been missing at the table. You know, when, when a hospital or a health system or a state government is deciding to invest in new health IT architecture, you will seldom find representation from patients on that table. I have yet to see a healthy amount of clinicians who understand uh, digital health technology at these tables. Uh, you, you typically uh, find administrators, uh, administrators who are very, very smart and very capable, right? So, so these decisions are not um, taken for the lack of competence. It is taken for, uh, they, they happen to be, they evolve the way they are for the lack of uh, the right voices around the table. And, and then no one 
is incentivized to fix the system. So the electronic medical record uh, needs attention in the U.S., for example, to make uh, to decrease the friction between the doctor and the medical record. I shouldn't have to input all this. There's enough technology where a lot of these data can be generated by other points in the system and get imported into the data. It is not unreasonable to think that voice recognition software, speech-to-text, should be able to make the process of recording this information a lot easier. And there are companies and startups that are trying to solve these problems. Um, but again, uh, the folks that have to invest in this and make this a priority, i.e. the boardrooms in these hospitals, uh, have not yet recognized how, uh, have not recognized the intensity of, of the problem and do not see it as a priority, right? So it is beginning to sort of um, uh, chip away um, a little bit, but no one is sort of uh, making it the front and center of a hospital's goals. But in India, it's a clean slate, pretty much, because we don't have EMRs. Um, and more importantly and interestingly, we have the benefit of the U.S. hindsight. And yeah, so we, we can look and see the problems that plague the U.S. system and hopefully create something in India that doesn't go down that path. And I think you know, moving to a PHR is probably a, a good first step in, in that direction. Right. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we're at a very, very um, opportune time in India where we can do this right. Because if we allow the collection of simple health data to be accurate, to be portable, to be interoperable, we cannot even begin to imagine what one can do once those data are applied for the public good. But, but just try. I mean, uh, it, it would be really nice to see some examples of uh, what could happen if we have this sort of data uh, in, in the manner that you're describing. So let's pick all three nodes in the system, the patient, the provider, and the public health agency. And let's take one example each, right? So for the patient, um, just having uh, their entire... Uh, having access to their data allows me to download all kinds of apps, right? So for those of us that are less, less literate or less health literate, there are reminders, there are notifications, there is a little bit more active handholding that my device lets me do. For the more sophisticated uh, consumer, there are um, apps that can help with behavioral changes based on, uh, you know, what they find in, in my personal health record. Um, say I am traveling and I want to know whether I need vaccines because of the country that I'm traveling to, and there is an app that looks at my vaccine record, looks at where I'm traveling, and tells me which nearest clinic to go to to get my vaccine push this a little bit further and think about what the cell phone itself can do. My colleagues at the public health school, for example, are researching whether uh, depression trends and mental health trends can be picked up by just our use of our cell phone. So you voluntarily sign up for this app that monitors how you move, how much you move during the day, how you use your phone, what you do on the phone, how much you linger uh, to come up with predictive algorithms for the state of your mental health. Uh, and this is currently under, under research and, and obviously it is voluntary. But you know these are uses that we couldn't think of. There are others that are looking at the accelerometer and the gyroscope in the phone to try and, and pick up whether the, the machine will pick up tremors 
uh, for Parkinson's before they become obvious either to the patient or the clinician, for example. So I think it's mind-blowing what uh, both the, the combination of data and technology can do if we reach its, its uh, potential. But the examples we're thinking about need not be sci-fi, need not be you know, sophisticated AI algorithms, but simply you know, a physician might uh, benefit from uh, getting a competitive chart of his or her practice uh, to neighborhood physicians. So let me give you two examples, for example. In... in um, the city of Somerville, where I live, in, uh, close to Boston, every month my energy bill comes with a chart of energy consumption of houses like mine in my neighborhood, and it is compared to my energy consumption. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, and it is you know a simple way of reminding me that I am consuming too much electricity, um, or that I probably should get a green star because my lights are always off. But it it does very subtly affect behavioral change. In clinical practice, um, you know, the United States is reeling with uh, the opiate, uh, the opioid epidemic. And so there are departments that will provide a chart at the end of the month, which uh, lets the physician compare his or her practice to um, their colleagues and see whether you are prescribing more opiates than the others. And if you are, you know, that's a self-check. It's subtle. It reminds you uh, that you need to change your practice. And very we, often in, in the actual instance, it's yeah. probably recommended. But in aggregate, if you see that you are above the norm, then there is something for to... some reflection, yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it is effective. And there is evidence that shows that the, these behavioral cues are, are effective. Um, in India, we certainly need to do this for antibiotics. You know, I would, I would love for our general practitioners to have access to where they are from what the standard should be, how much they are over-prescribing, and how much their neighborhood physicians are prescribing. And then, you know, we hear all these example. superbugs in the big hospitals, largely because there's no antibiotic now that can kill these bugs. That yeah, are no, largely because we have done this to ourselves as a society and blaming the doctor simply is not fair. I think we as patients have also demanded uh, that, you know, all illnesses be f treated with antibiotics. I mean, of course, the primary responsibility is that of the health professional to not uh, willy-nilly prescribe higher and higher forms of antibiotics. But with the data, done. which is trended in the yeah. way, like, you know, if you do a, a trending chart like the opioid yes. thing yeah. um, in India, yeah. but, but for antibiotics, yeah. uh, and if you see where you score yeah. against yeah. your peers... Yeah. That's sort of a ref yeah, moment we, of reflection. Yeah, we just need to stop having uh, sort of a gestalt conversation about this, right? I mean, medical science has to be uh, more about the science of medicine, less about the art of medicine. We have to generate data. We have the opportunity in India to, to generate trillions of data points with 1.5 you know, billion of us and growing. And uh, you know, somewhere in there sort of lies uh, the secret to our, our medical woes. Uh, we have to figure out a way to, to do this in in a uh, secure and safe fashion that benefits us. So from a public health agency perspective, um, again, right, just drawing up those four data points that I talked about, I would like to, as a public health officer, know in the monsoon season if um, there is a spike in uh, malaria-positive smears in a particular neighborhood so that I can target my anti-malarial measures in that neighborhood. So if only I had access to de-identified aggregate data from labs across the city, for example, where all I'm asking is that they report positive malaria smears, um, I would be able to make this actionable in real time. 
And, and there is precedence for this. India has, uh, you know, at an average of about 20, 21 notifiable diseases that states require practitioners, and they're able to enforce this better in the public system than in the private system, to report positive cases of certain diseases. All we are saying is that by 2019, we ought to be able to do this in real time to make it actionable, to bring it to the benefit of the taxpayer and the citizen. Uh, these data are completely useless sitting in, you know, Gozerich cupboards in, in government offices. And, and I, I heard from someone else that the Nipah virus in Kerala, the reason why it wasn't much worse than it was is actually because someone was able to pick up that symptom identified as the Nipah virus. Yeah. Apparently someone had just recently been trained on it or something like that so could immediately identify yeah. this. Yeah. And then the state health machinery yeah. swung into action and it, it sort of, it could have been much, much worse. And it is no coincidence that this happened in, uh, that, that an effective response was seen in Kerala, which has a robust public health system where they are routinely collecting uh, large quantities of data, where they have some capacity to analyze these data fairly effectively. Um, you know, you brought up Kerala. I think the leptospirosis outbreak after the August floods is, is, is something worth uh, mentioning because um, as soon as they realized that they had an epidemic on hand, they launched an aggressive campaign of distributing doxycycline, both for treatment and prophylaxis, and, and the epidemic was uh, curtailed. Now, there isn't the best scientific evidence to show that doxy, doxy works, but it is the best of what we have, and that is the norm. And here, Kerala has the opportunity, if they have access to the right kinds of data, to actually advance scientific knowledge globally on the topic, if we can actually model how much of that leptospirosis outbreak might have been averted by giving doxy, right? So you can do mathematical modeling to show how large the epidemic could be, and you need simple data points for that, including all the clinics that had people show up with lepto or lepto-like signs and symptoms, and um, the distribution of doxy in the population, and you know, sort of, you want to map it uh, on the population, understand a little bit of what the migration and mobility looked like then. And while some of these data are available, um, it is very hard to have uh, access to very simple information like uh, where was the doxy uh, prescribed or prophylactically given on what date and in what space. And these data are not digitized and are not available. Um, and, you know, it, it precludes us from uh, meaningfully and very quickly um, analyzing the effectiveness of these responses. So I, I want to spend the last uh, segment of our conversation really talking about the privacy implications of this. Right? On the one hand, there are all these things that we've been saying uh, for the last uh, 15 minutes about if we have data, there is so much good that we could potentially do. But at the same time, the disclosure of personal health data is in many ways deeply invasive of uh, an individual's personal privacy. There are many instances where the uh, uh, disclosure of a particular uh, symptom uh, has resulted in you know, the person having a significantly curtailed social life, right? depending on the stigma associated with the disease, uh, sometimes um, not able to work um, because jobs weren't available to them. And you know, there's, uh, so I, all I'm trying to say is that apart from the financial cost 
of privacy, there is reputational cost, and there are all sorts of other more intangible costs to a violation of privacy, which is exacerbated sometimes in the medical context because there is so much of a stigma uh, sometimes attached um, to illness. And I think there's, there's a weighing that needs to be done between the, the good uh, as well as the harms. Uh, and I think um, uh, it's always important to assume that there will be bad actors in the system and that everyone is not coming into this with the noble ideals that you have. Uh, and also with, I guess, the ethical framework that you have, uh, saying that, look, I'm not going to go uh, this far. So um, how do we address these sorts of things? So, you know, for instance, uh, uh, you, we spoke about the exception in the Sri Krishna committee to, uh, to, to disclosure of personal information in the context of an emergency. And I think that is beautiful, beautiful in, the, in the medical context because very often in an emergency room, someone comes in and you don't have the time to get consent for all sorts of things. You just have to go in and save that person's life. Uh, and uh, equally, people can manufacture emergencies uh, and use that as an excuse to, to do violations of privacy. And these are the sorts of balancing things that uh, I, I think even as we as a country has the ability to articulate a new way of digitizing data that the rest of the world hasn't, we also have the opportunity to articulate a new framework within which we've got to make this balance. Uh, and I think a, a lot of that frame setting comes from conversations like this, where uh, you, know, you talk about the benefits, and we, we, you also need to be mindful of the harms that, that happen. And in the, in, in, in the mix is where that answer is. You're absolutely right, and, and medical science and research is, is um, strewn with examples of serious harm that has been, that the harms that have been done to not just patients but populations. And, and you know, digital tools are, are uh, potentially one other instrument to, to, to do such harm at scale. So we have to be very cognizant of what it is that we are wishing for. And I think, therefore, there needs to be some recognition of the question is not whether or not to digitize and make health data interoperable and portable and more easily accessible. I think the question is how do we as society bring to bear these technologies for the good of the patient, the provider, and for science, right? So, so it isn't um, whether or not we should do it, but how do we do it right? And the solution. and the right includes uh, the good that it will uh, it will do and the prevention of harm and the prevention of harm that could yeah. result from a breach of privacy or all the other yes. attendant consequences. Yes, yes. And I think we need some guiding principles. We need to discuss this issue about uh, secondary use that we talked about. You know, balancing research versus uh, primary you know, consent-driven architecture. We need to understand more sort of the architecture that has been used in the financial uh, tech space in India very effectively uh, in, in linking various nodes in the financial ecosystem through fiduciaries, through the account aggregator, as you know, seen um, in uh, the UPI framework in India stack, and to see which of these models are applicable and are not applicable to healthcare data uh, transfer. 
And and I think we should not completely leave this to the markets either. You know, we cannot be sitting around waiting for that one use case which is going to ignite the entire system. I think health is still very much a state subject in India. Hundred uh, percent of preventive medicine is offered by the public sector, while you know a lot of uh, therapeutic uh, medicine treatment is is shared between the public and the private sector. So the question then is, how do you bring to bear, and maybe this is the question that I get to ask you, is uh, how do we interpret the Sri Krishna Commission, especially sort of its mandate on portability and interoperability, to get these various nodes in the system to be interoperable? To your point about privacy, You're absolutely right, and I think we have to proceed cautiously. There can be no negligence, and the architecture we propose should therefore minimize uh, single-point failures. Uh, Large centralized uh, health uh, ecosystems where the state or the center imagines that there will be one EHR and everything is, you know, um, all the data are funneled up to uh, central servers uh, is probably not the most imaginative way to think about this. We should think about a federated architecture architecture, we should think about decentralized system, we should think about uh, providing patients um, multiple options to engage with the system using an identity uh, authentication that they are comfortable with. Uh, we should provide uh, access to uh, scientists um, and industry to take advantage of these large data sets in a way in which the law of the land uh, uh, settles um, its comfort level. Sachet, thank you so much. Uh, I hope we'll have more of these conversations. Thank you very much, Rahul. Look forward to it.